Everybody is finding their seats. I've got a couple of announcements to take us through. Next week would have been the week for Camp Arete, but because of the virus and the quarantines and shutdowns and everything else, uh, they will not have the camp, and they are going to have an online webinar next week uh, from July 13th through the 17th, and that will be at 1 to 4 p.m. Mountain Time, 2 to 5 p.m. Central Time, and 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. So if you, you can go to their website and get information, I'm assuming, and then they will be uh, covering this. So uh, the speakers are going to be Pastor David Rosen from uh, Preston City Bible Church, Pastor Clay Ward. They've got a few other uh, speakers as well, uh, Jeff Phipps, Charlie Clough, and Brad Maston. So those are going to be the different speakers uh, through through the week. Also, we are, um, let me see here, election, you have one more day for early voting, and then the runoff is going to be next uh, Tuesday. Tuesday, I believe, is the 14th. So if you are, uh, have not done early voting, then you can, Vote with the regular time at the scheduled election, which is on, on Tuesday. How should a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we go to the word of God to get guidance and direction on how we should elect leaders, how we should vote in a very uh, complicated, difficult time, then uh, we will, before we do that, we need to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. It is so easy today, I think, to become distracted by all of the things that are going on, by all of the news by all of the different uh, reports related to the uh, COVID virus, by the reports of uh, the dismantling and moving and toppling of statues and various other things, that believers need to just really work. At, it's a great time to, spirit, to grow spiritually because you have an opportunity to discipline yourself, to focus on uh, the truth and not on all of the things that are going on in the world. But we need to learn how to think and think wisely and make wise choices, biblically wise choices, which has to do with living skillfully. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we have the opportunity to make sure we are in fellowship, walking with the Lord. If there is sin, then we need to confess sin uh, in silent prayer, make sure we are continuing to walk by the Spirit. So after that, after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a tremendous privilege we have to go to your word, to have your word, to have a 
solid translation of your word before us, that we can read and understand that which you have revealed to us, which has been designated as scripture since Moses first wrote down the Torah some 3,500 years ago. And Father, we still have and treasure your word, and we pray that we would focus on it, that we would depend upon it, that we would submit to it, and that there are some who may be listening who may not like what they hear. I challenge each one to look at the Scripture to see if that's what the Scripture teaches. But we have to evaluate what goes on around us by the standard of your Word. Father, we pray that you would help us to have the humility to submit to your Word and to follow the truth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we are studying the topic of how should we then vote. We have to make decisions, and part of life's decisions and part of our responsibility, which is our topic this evening and last week, is responsibility. We're responsible in many different areas. And one of the verses that came to my mind as I was thinking about this was a verse that described the growth of our Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, that he grew uh, in favor with God and man and in wisdom and stature. Four categories. He grew uh, in wisdom before God and man, so that it relates to his spiritual growth, his social development, dealing with human beings, living with sinners. And you think you have a problem living with sinners He was perfectly righteous and had to live in the midst of sinners. But nevertheless, he did not sin. He did not get angry. He did not uh, get bitter and resentful about people who he knew were dead wrong and who were out to get him and who were out to destroy him, which they eventually did. And so he walked in perfection. But you have those two categories, walk, uh, his growth spiritually, his growth socially, and in favor with, I mean, excuse me, and he grew in wisdom and stature, which focuses on his development educationally, growing in wisdom and the application of God's word and learning to live life skillfully. He grew in wisdom and stature, that's his physical de- development, and in favor with both God and man. So we have those four categories. Now, we are responsible in our lives in each one of those categories. We're responsible to uh, grow and develop intellectually, to learn what we need to learn in order to live life skillfully. So we grow in wisdom. That's knowledge. That's information. That's the technical skills we need to have a job to labor, to honor God with the work of our hands and with our minds. We grow in in wisdom and stature. Stature relates to our physical development, our physical health, taking care of our our bodies uh, for the purpose of being able to serve him with as long a life as as he allows, as healthy as we can. We grow in Uh, in favor with God and man. And so we grow spiritually and we grow uh, socially. In each of those areas, we have responsibilities. And that's part of this first divine institution. We have personal responsibility. Now, last time I introduced these divine institutions and said that they are really the foundation 
of social order. These relate to social laws that God built into the very nature of, of what it means to be a human being uh, in, created in God's image. So we're looking at these divine institutions, and the key verse is, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And I've been reading more and more articles by respected uh, respected editorialists, respected writers, who are extremely getting more and more concerned every week that we are watching our foundations crumble around us in our culture and in our world. And we may indeed face that. That's not outside the realm of possibility. I don't want to be someone who is uh, just uh, proclaiming gloom and doom. But we don't know what's going to happen. We've never seen a year like this. I think there have been other tragic years. Uh, we can think back to World War II, uh, World War I to some degree. But to see some of the things happen that are happening right now, the shutting down of world economies of almost every country in the world uh, due to fear over a pandemic that may or may not really be all that they claim it is. A lot of us think that it's been overblown. But now we see a lot more people in Houston getting uh, getting the virus, people we know uh, who are getting the virus, and this is a real problem. So we have to we have to face some of these things, and we see all of the riots and some of the things, and we begin to realize that um, that what's been happening on the college and university campus for the last forty or fifty years has basically been a a subtle but extremely destructive attack on everything that we believe and everything that makes America uh, the great lighthouse to the world. There's a reason that people want to come here, that people want to immigrate, that people take the chances to come here illegally. And that is not because we are a beacon of socialism. It is because we are a place that uh, we have opportunity for people. And we provide that opportunity, and they can have a better life, a better life for themselves, a better life for their, uh, for their children. But if you listen to the critics, this is a horrible place to live. This is the worst country in the world. And it's just lies, and it's just propaganda, because their ultimate intent is to overturn this nation. It's born out, it's, their attitude is born out of jealousy. It's be, be, born out of anger and resentment over things that have uh, been blown out of proportion. And I'm not saying that some of the things that have happened recently that have triggered some of these riots and everything, I'm not trying to justify them in any way, but when you know history and you study history, you come to understand that, yes, we live in a horrible world. We live in a world that is that is corrupt, where every single human being has to deal with uh, injustice, with undeserved suffering. Uh, many people that we know have gone through uh, trials and tribulations that are much worse than anything that we have imagined about their lives. They keep it private. They don't whine about it. They don't wear it on their shirt sleeve. And yet this is what it means to live in a fallen world. And yet the enemy, the enemies of this nation, and of course the ultimate en enemy of God is Satan. And the lie is that that we can have perfection, that God's just holding, keeping st stuff back from us. That's what the lie was to Eve in the garden. Did God really say this? 
And he has, uh, the, Satan has worked for hundreds of years to bring that same doubt into Western civilization so that now we have a world that is populated by uh, young people that are extremely skeptical of any religious claims. They're skeptical of tr- Christianity. They're hostile to Christianity because that, that is what they have taught. And what we're going to see in this study is that the very foundations of Western civilization are the, what's taught in the Word of God, and that is threatened. Uh, it is more seriously threatened today than I believe at any time in, in, in history. It's not just the United States. It is Western Europe. It is, it is Western civilization that has spread out through the Western Hemisphere. And we have to understand this to shape our thinking so it does a couple of things. First of all, it will fortify us if we understand what's going on and why and knowing that God is still in control and God has a plan and a purpose. And number two, it gives us a framework to be able to give insight to others, maybe others in our family, others who are friends, others that we work with, people we know, because a lot of people are in a stage where they are, they may not be coming out with it, but they're asking these same questions. What's going to happen? How far is this pandemic going to go? How long are these lockdowns and these quarantines uh, going to take place? What's going to happen? And so there is a measure of uncertainty and a great deal of instability right now. And that's a great opportunity to remind people that God's in charge and we have his word and we have promises and we can trust him even if things really go, go in a very bad direction. But we have to understand what these foundations are. We started with understanding the worldview that ultimately everything that you say, everything that you articulate, every belief that you have goes back ultimately to a belief in God. Or what's that ultimate reality? Do we have a personal infinite God, which is the claim of Christianity, or is there nothing? Nothing eternal except matter and energy. That's naturalism. And what we're witnessing all around us really is a clash between those two worldviews. And we have to decide uh, which one is the truth. And, we, and that leads us to the issue of knowledge and that God has spoken. Uh, Francis Schaeffer said it well in the title of one of his books in what is called his trilogy. He is there and he is not silent. God is there and he has spoken. And so that is the foundation of knowledge. And part of that knowledge is to tell us what is right and what is wrong. When we have an innate sense that things, certain things just aren't right, that there is injustice in the world, that there are things that happen that are, that are unfair. And we look at some people's lives and we just see that year after year after year, they seem to always deal with hardship and difficulty, financial trouble. And often we can't see that it's related to any decision that they've made or any action that they've taken. Uh, we live in a fallen world, and we have to come to grips with that in our in our understanding. That's where the book of Job comes in, in understanding this kind of undeserved suffering that just, with some people it just plagues their lives, and with other people not so much. But nobody gets out of this life without going through some extremely difficult, uh, terrible suffering. Everybody faces it. And the other is the divine institutions. These are absolute social structures instituted by God for the entire human race. 
They are true if you're an unbeliever. They're true if you're a believer. They're true if you're Asian. They're true if you're African. They're true if you're at the bottom of the poverty food chain. If you are among the wealthiest and most powerful in the world, they are equally true. It doesn't matter if you are a Slav. It doesn't matter if you're European, if you're a South American or an Aborigine uh, native to South America or to Australia, or if you're Asian, it's true for everybody. It doesn't matter if you're living 2000 BC or 2000 AD. It is equally true for everyone. And that if you follow these divine institutions, you will have a measure of stability and a measure of prosperity in your life. But if you don't follow them, then everything will crumble. The foundations will be shattered. And so we have to understand these divine institutions, and they're given to the human race by God for the uh, perpetuation, the stability, the protection and freedom, and preservation, even, of the human race. So we've looked at these several times. Here's the chart. The first three divine institutions are individual responsibility, marriage, and family. These are all instituted by God in Genesis chapter 2, and they relate to uh, providing a framework for productivity and advancing civilization at a time when there was no sin, in perfect environment. In the idyllic state of the Garden of Eden, God designed these. So marriage and family are not designed to to somehow control sin, but to produce a positive civilization and to advance it. The next three, government, uh, judicial authority delegated by God to human leaders, nations, the development of nations and nationalism in the biblical sense, not in the way it's distorted by those who are asserting some sort of racial or ethnic superiority, but the fact that God established the borders, according to Acts chapter 17. He established nations by dividing the languages at the Tower of Babel and then Israel. Because when God made his covenant with with Abraham, he said, those who bless you I will bless, those who curse you I will curse. He didn't say those who are believers and bless you I will bless. And if they're believers and curse you, I'll curse them. It applies to every human being, saved or not. That's key in understanding all of these divine institutions because they are these absolute social structures that God built into the human race for our preservation. We saw last time that man cre- God created man in his image and likeness in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And in verse 28 we read the statement that gives the first five areas of responsibility to Adam and Eve in the garden. A lot of people get the idea that Adam and Eve were put in this perfect garden. Well, what did they do? Did they just sit around and eat whatever they could find that God had provided for them? Uh, what did they do? Were they lazy? Did they just sleep all day? Or what, what exactly did they do? Very few people even think about those kinds of things. But what we see is that God gave them responsibilities. Now, these responsibilities weren't burdensome. The word I use as a synonym for that, they weren't toilsome because there was no fight, there was no struggle between man and the creation. 
So there was a cooperation between the two. It's a perfect environment. There's, there's no sin. There are no weeds. Nothing is difficult to grow. Everything is absolutely perfect. And God gives them five things, five areas of responsibility in this verse. They're positive commands, be fruitful and multiply. So he tells them from the very beginning, your job is to have children, to build families in multiple generations. Why? Because they are going to go out over the whole earth and they are going to learn how all the resources that God has, learn about all the resources God has given them to develop those resources and to rule over it as God's representative to his creation. They're to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. So they're to learn about it so they can control it. And they have dominion over everything else that God has created, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then we saw in the second chapter that as God placed them in the garden, he gave them two additional responsibilities, to tend and keep the garden. And that basically means that they're to serve God. The word for tend means to serve. So they're serving God in the garden by uh, taking care of it and to keep it. And this word also has the idea of guarding or protecting it. So that gives us a total of seven commandments, or seven responsibilities, let's say, And then in verses 19 and 20, God gives Adam the responsibility to start categorizing and classifying and naming the animals. So they had a lot to do. They had a lot of responsibilities, but none of them carried any negative consequences with them. There was one prohibition, and this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they're told not to eat of it. They can eat from any other tree in the garden, but not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that they do, God says, you will certainly die. The Hebrew idiom indicates something that is absolutely certain. It's it's emphasized. So this is the only prohibition, and it carries a harsh, harsh penalty. So what we see in this area is is from the very beginning, in perfect environment, everybody, every individual was to be responsible for the decisions they make. They were to carry out and fulfill God's commands to serve him in certain ways, and they were going to be held accountable if they disobeyed God. There are, there's a punishment and accountability in life. And we live in a world today when a lot of people uh, don't care about that at all. They've never learned that. They've never been taught that by their parents. They've never had any kind of real uh, disciplinary training, either in the positive or the neg- negative sense. You know, the positive sense of discipline is the kind of thing that where you learn to control your emotions, control your sin nature, you learn to focus on a task and carry it out and uh, achieve something of excellence. On the other hand, the negative of discipline is feeling the negative consequences, the sometimes harsh consequences of failure and disobedience. So when we looked at this Last week, I put this chart up here that individual responsibility operates in three areas. The implications are in three areas. First of all, there's personal individual accountability for spiritual and physical assets. They are to develop, they're to improve, they're to learn about and study 
all of the physical things that God has given them, and then they are to grow in their relationship with God. And God came, we're told, in the cool of the day to meet with them and teach them and to develop that relationship with them because he created them so that they could do that. That's why they're says that they're created in God's image. Three times says God created them in his image and likeness. They have labor. They have responsibilities. It's not toilsome. It's not difficult. It's fun. And they get to explore and develop this incredible world that God has created and to enjoy that which they develop. And then third, there's the implication of private property. Now, we'll develop that a little later on, but there's private property. They have work to do, and they they will enjoy the fruits of their labor. And so that indicates that, that there's a personal property. It's not communal and wasn't designed to be communal. But there are consequences. We looked at this last time, and I want to return to the... Uh, initial part of the story uh, before we go any further with the curse or the consequences. And if you look at verse 7 in Genesis chapter 3, we get one of the consequences, one of the results that, that occurs when people are irresponsible, when they sin, when they fail, when they're disobedient. And so in verse 7, we're told that after Eve and Adam ate of the fruit. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. There's something. There's a self-revelation that there's an exposure of their vulnerability now that they were unaware of before. There was something uh, drastic that happened, and so what is the result of that? They have failed. They have disobeyed God, and so first of all, they realize they know they failed. They know they have been disobedient. They know that something drastic has changed. It, it, it reverberates through the core of their, of their soul. Something is different. And the second thing that we see is that they try to fix it. See, this is one of the things that often goes with irresponsible behavior is you break something, uh, metaphorically, you have violated something, you have committed a crime, you've made a mistake, you've broken something, whatever it may be, and now you try to fix it. You try to cover it up. You try to hide it so that you are not taking responsibility or ownership for the bad decision that you make. And uh, often this is what has trapped uh, political figures and business figures. It's not so much the original thing that they did what was that was wrong that got them entangled. This is what happened with Watergate. It was the cover-up. See, Watergate was just a more sophisticated form of sowing fig leaves because that's what Adam and Eve did. They realized they were naked. They had made a serious error. They had disobeyed God, and so they tried to cover it up by sowing uh, fig leaves together to make coverings for themselves. They were trying to fix it and hide it so that They wouldn't be accountable for it. They wouldn't be blamed for it. They wouldn't have to suffer the consequences. So that's part of what happens in divine institution number one is when we fail and we're irresponsible, we try to avoid the consequences. We try to to cover cover it all up. And so that's what is covered in 
Uh, Genesis 3, 7, and then in verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what did they do? They ran and hid. They tried to get away from God because they didn't want more exposure. They didn't want to be confronted uh, by God, and so they're, they're, they're involved in a cover-up, literally, and that's a sign that they have failed to make a good decision. They failed in their responsibility. And then the next thing that happens is they try to assign blame to someone else. They avoid taking personal responsibility for the failure. And if you look down to verse uh, 11, God has appeared. They ran and hid. And God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten fruit have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And look at their response in verse 12. Then the man said, the woman. First of all, he's blaming her, but he's not really blaming her because he follows it up by saying, the woman you gave me. So he's blaming the woman. He's blaming God, but he is avoiding taking personal responsibility for his own failure. So that often goes when we disobey God and disobey or fail in any responsibility. We shift the blame to someone else. We seek to cover it up and we seek to avoid irresponsibility. But what we then see is that um, irresponsibility brings consequences. And that's what we looked at last time. There are consequences uh, for the serpent uh, th- that he's going to be cursed, but more than the other animals. That indicates that the, all the other animals are cursed and the serpent more so. So all of the animal kingdom comes under this divine judgment. It isn't going to be what it was originally intended to be. There's flaws and problems now. And then there's a judgment on the woman. Uh, but I'll put enmity between you, that is the serpent and the woman, And between your seed and her seed, there's going to be an ongoing conflict between the the descendants of the serpent, who's really Satan. Revelation 12 tells us that uh, that Satan is the serpent of old, the devil. And so that's who we're dealing with here. And so there's going to be this hostility, this state of war between you and the woman because the woman's seed, her descendant, her children, one of her children is going to come and bruise the head of the uh, serpent, and the serpent will bruise him on the heel. There's this battle, and this is ultimately fulfilled at the cross, where there is a bruise, as it were, on Christ as he dies physically, but then three days later he has victory over death and and rises from the grave, and in his uh, death on the cross, his payment for sin, he has defeated Satan, and in his victory over death, he has defeated Satan, and he has paid the sin penalty for, for, for the world. And then Adam faces consequences. And with those consequences, God says, because you listen to the voice of your wife, now it's not, that doesn't mean it's always wrong or necessarily wrong that you listen to your wife, but if your wife is giving you bad counsel or non-biblical advice, then you don't listen. Uh, just like you wouldn't listen to a man or anyone else. Uh, So that has to be contextualized because you listen to your wife tempt you to do the wrong thing. And you ate from the tree um, 
now the ground is going to be cursed. That was the area of his responsibility in guarding and keeping the garden. And now the ground is going to be cursed. So he has a responsibility. But now in the area of labor and providing food and gaining food and all of the other aspects of life, there's going to be a conflict. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be difficulty. There's, there's going to be a struggle. And so sometimes it's going to be almost impossible to get food because of where you might live or because of economic circumstances beyond your control. And so there's just this, this struggle uh, that goes on just to live. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it. See, it wasn't toilsome before, but now it's toilsome all your life. It's always going to be a struggle. Thorns and thistles shall come up. Now you're going to have to weed. You know, somebody once said, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, but it still needs to be cut and weeded. You can't find a, a utopic environment. There, We live in a fallen world. And so God says, thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field in the sweat of your face. It's toilsome. It's miserable. It's going to be difficult. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. There are times when you will have success, but times when you will have incredible failure until finally you return to the ground. You die physically. This is the first time physical death is mentioned. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return, and then you can't stop there. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden. Man was expelled from this idyllic, perfect, utopic environment. And as long as there is sin in the world, as long as the human race is comprised of sinners, as long as we live in a fallen world, we cannot restore that utopic state. And that's the lesson of the Bible, that's the lesson of history, is that man can never, no matter what, solve this problem. Only God could. And God solved that problem on the cross. And so the first part of the, realizing that solution is what we see in the church age with Christians who grow in the knowledge and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and they apply the word as they face the challenges and the difficulties of living in a fallen world. And then it will culminate in that horrible rebellion of the earth dwellers against God in what we call the tribulation, seven years of horror. Uh, the church will not be present. We will be raptured out of this earth before that happens. And then Christ will return at the end and establish his kingdom. But the people who, the believers who survive the tribulation will enter into the kingdom. They will have children that have sin natures. And by the end of a thousand years, there will be untold millions who will rebel against the perfect government of Christ to teach us that it is sin that's the problem. It's the failure of personal responsibility that's the problem. It's not the education system. It's not the economic system. So you can get rid of Marx and you can get rid of Engels and you can get rid of all your, all your socialist theor theories because that's not the problem. The problem isn't economic. The problem isn't educational. The problem isn't cultural. The problem is sin. There used to be a comic strip uh, called Pogo, and one of the, it had some different animal 
type creatures that were in it. And one day, Pogo says, we have met the enemy and he is us. Never forget that. We are the enemy. It's the sin nature within us. That's the enemy. And that is what the millennial proves and demonstrates is it's not the environment. It, it, it's not education. It's not social programs. It's not all of these things that Marxism and socialism and all the other utopic experience, experiments uh, try to solve. The problem is sin, and the only solution is Christ on the cross. And as long as we have sin in the world, there's going to be problems and, and failures. So to summarize, the consequences of sin, the physical world is corrupted. Uh, humans will be born spiritually dead. Uh, apart, alienated from the life of God. All living things will eventually die physically, and it will many times be a horrible, painful, excruciating death. Uh, you look at the out in the animal world, they will be, uh, they will be killed by predators. They will die of starvation. They will grow old and not be able to feed themselves. The same kinds of things have happened to human beings down through the centuries. Now we have great medical care, and so it is not quite so bad. But, but if you have certain diseases uh, that linger for a long time, then it will be very difficult for you and for those around you. Earning a living for food, water, shelter, clothing, education, health care, child care will be a constant struggle. I want you to think about that point. Because of the curse on the ground, trying to earn food, trying to get food, you have to work for it. If you have to work for it, it's not a right. I want you to think about the words in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that from our Creator we have some unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Notice it doesn't say life, liberty, and happiness. We don't have a right to be happy. We have a right, a God-given right, to try to pursue happiness, to find meaning and purpose in life by exercising our God-given responsibilities. But we don't have a right to happiness. Now, there are people today that believe in a utopic environment, uh, believe in socialism and Marxism, and they hold out the lie that human beings can find happiness if, if you just didn't have this economic struggle. But that economic struggle is the result of the curse of sin. We can't eradicate that. That's not, a, that's not within our purview. And so uh, those unalienable rights give us the freedom to pursue solutions to the struggles that we face in life. But part of those struggles are going to involve earning a living so that we can buy food, so that we can provide shelter for ourselves and for our family, so we can clothe ourselves. These are, you don't, no one has a right to be clothed. No one has a right to an education. Those are all things that we have to work at, we have to earn, and it's part of the struggle. So uh, education, health care, think about these in terms of the debates we have politically right now. Where, every, where, where the, those out there, everybody has a right to health care. Nobody's ever said that in the history of the world. Nobody has a right to be healthy. No one has, you have a right to live if you can, 
You have a right to life that should not be taken away from you through murder or some other, some other means, but you don't have a right to be healthy. That is part, part of your responsibility is to take care of your own health, to take care of your own education, to take care of your children, provide for your children. That is, and what happens is in a, in a direct violation of, of this first divine institution of personal responsibility by saying that we have a right to food and to shelter and clothing and education, health care, child care, we shift that to the responsibility of the government. And that's never the res- to be the responsibility of the government. Government was not created to provide us with food, shelter, and clothing, but to guarantee our right to pursue that and to work for it and to exercise our responsibility so that those who work hard will sometimes, sometimes be rewarded with great success or even some success. But you and I both know that there are hundreds of thousands of people who work hard and they never seem to have the fortune of others who seem to work less hard, but they seem to find success in some way that uh, is not the, does not ever come to some other people. And we don't know why that is, except we're all living in the devil's world. And some people seem to work harder, and they, they seem to do everything right, and they have more trouble. They're, they're like Job. Job is one of the earliest books of the Bible given, and I think that it's given uh, to teach us that, that there's going to be undeserved suffering. Life in this world is going to make up a lot of suffering. So we don't have a right, an inherent right to food, water, shelter, clothing, education, health care, child care. It's always going to be a struggle. There will be disease and famine. There will be violence. There will be wars. There will be abuse of human being against human being, sometimes that are absolutely horrific. There'll be failure and misery. There'll be pandemics and plagues. There'll be an economic collapse. There'll be extreme poverty in the world. There'll be the abuse of authority and much, much more, all because of sin. Earning a living for food, water, shelter, clothing would be a constant struggle. And my next point, our Constitution recognizes some God-given rights right to life, liberty, and the opportunity is really, that's the sense of that. The word's not there, but that's what it is, uh, the opportunity to pursue happiness. See, you can either guarantee equal opportunity to pursue happiness or, or to pursue success, or you can try to guarantee success, but you can't do both. Freedom to pursue opportunities is what freedom and liberty is all about. Because we can't guarantee a life where there's no pain, no suffering, no sorrow, no failures, no consequences from sin. But that's what socialism and Marxism hold out if you read about their, their ideas and their concepts of where history is going. We have rights that are ours that are inalienable to liberty of speech assembly, self-defense, to bear arms, self to uh, worship as we desire, to live out our convictions. And today, some want to include the ones at the top, food, water, shelter, clothing, 
etc. But we need to understand what the Word of God teaches. In Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6 through 15, God says some pretty remarkable things through the Apostle Paul. Paul is writing to the Thessalonians. He comes into the third chapter, and now he's going to give some personal exhortations. He spent the first two chapters talking about uh, the questions, the answers to the questions they had about the end times. And now he says, but we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw, you break fellowship with every brother, that is every believer in your life, who walks disorderly. Now, what does he mean, who walks disorderly? The context is going to tell us. And not according to the tradition which he received from us. The tradition that they had received from Paul was the importance of an orderly life where you worked hard, you earned your own living, you took care of yourself and your family. And this is what he states in the coming verses. For you yourself know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly, there's that word again, we were not disorderly among you. What are the characteristics of being disorderly? We didn't eat anyone's bread free of charge. We, we weren't looking for a handout. We weren't going to live off of other people's labor. We wanted to work uh, and earn our own food and earn our own and provide for our own shelter. So we didn't eat anyone's bread free of charge, but we worked with labor and toil night and day. Now, in other places, Paul says that it's legitimate for uh, those in the ministry to be provided for by, by churches. But Paul is making this particular point with the Thessalonians that he didn't take advantage of that at this point and that he worked. He wasn't there to take advantage of them and, and become a freeloader. He said, we labored and toiled night and day, day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because, verse 9, he says, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. So they wanted to be an example of hard work, of a good, solid work ethic. Verse 10, he goes on to say, for even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Now see, if if eating, remember those that list of things I had over here, if eating, drinking water, eating would include all of these kinds of things, food, water, shelter, clothing, education, health care, child care. If that was a right, then Paul would be exceptionally wrong here. He says, but if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. He doesn't have a right to eat. He has a right to work, to labor, to earn his food, to earn a place and build a place where he can provide shelter and provide for his family. But if he's not willing to work, to exercise his God-given responsibility in the area of labor, then he has no right to eat. And then Paul said in verse 11, For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner. So there's our word again. Disorderly is being lazy, 
Disorderly is not fulfilling your personal responsibilities to take care of yourself and provide for yourself and to to try to uh, have others take care of all of your all of your uh, financial needs and all of your food needs and, and basically be irresponsible. Uh, that has an application today because there are a lot of young people over the last 10, 15 years who have not learned to take responsibility for their lives when they reach an age of maturity. They go off and they leave and they go off to uh, school and then they come back and they move in with their parents, live down in the basement or garage apartment or get their bedroom back, but they don't do anything to take care of the uh, the burden of their responsibilities to provide help with the food, help with the bills, help with the maintenance of the house. They don't do any of that. When I was um, when I was 23, I moved back in with my parents. I did that for a reason. I had graduated from college when I was 21. I had taught school for a year, and I had worked during the summers at uh, at Camp Penile. But by the by October of my second year of teaching school, where I made a you know halfway decent income, I could I could survive. I knew that I was probably going to either go to Dallas Seminary or maybe another seminary, and I needed to save money, and I needed to prepare to be able to go and pay my bills when I went to seminary. Nobody was going to pay them for me. And so I talked to my dad about it, and I moved back, and I gave money to them every month to cover extra food costs, to cover cover rent, cover a few things like that, but they... Uh, they weren't asking for a whole lot, but they, they, we, they had the principle, you're, you're going to live here, you're going to help take care of things. And I understood that. That was n- never a problem or a conflict. And I, so I was able to put aside a lot of money that year and to save it to go off to school the next year. I was, I've talked to several guys my age group, and we'll t- I say, well, when did you start working? When did you go out and get your first paycheck and earn your first dollar? And many of them have experiences like, like I did. When I was uh, 12 years old, 13, I had a job as a, uh, I went out and took the initiative to go knock on neighbors' doors and say, okay, I'll, uh, I'll be glad to cut your grass for you for 75 cents. That was a lot of money back then. And so I would get about four or five yards, and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I would go cut their grass and I would get my 75 cents, and I would do it in the summer, do it early in the morning before it gets too hot, be done with my yard work by 9 o'clock, and then you'll never guess. It was so out of character. You'll never guess what I did. I got on my bicycle, and I rode to the bookstore up at Westbury Square, and I would buy a paperback novel, and I would go home, and I would spend the afternoon, and by the time I went to bed that night, I would be done reading it. And the next day, I would go cut another yard. And paperback novels were 50 cents. I still have some of those books. They were 50 cents, so I, I would come out each day with an extra quarter, and, and every day I would go buy a book, and I would come home, and I would read it, and the next day I'd get up. And that's how I spent a couple of summers. And I got a job working out at Rice Stadium selling seatbacks, that's where I learned that you don't pitch coins with guys who are older than you who know how to take advantage of you because you're going to lose your money. So I learned a lot of life's lessons, and I worked through, uh, worked through high school. My parents never 
said anything that you need to work. And, and I've talked to other men who grew up during that time. We just, want, we just felt like, you know, we're going to be an adult. We need to work. We need to make our, make our own money. My dad always told me, I'll never give you an allowance, and he never did. He said, you have to learn that, that you earn every penny, every quarter that you have. You work for it. I'm not going to give you anything for free. And so they would have different chores and things and set up stipulations that if I would do things, then, then they, would, um, they would give me a certain amount of money for doing this and a certain amount of money for doing this. I might earn a nickel, might earn a dime and a quarter. That was a lot of money in those days. And so I would always earn my money. And so uh, that came along. And then when I was in uh, high school, I got a job working at a gas station and all kinds of different things, but I always worked, even though I had a scholarship, a uh, military uh, ROTC scholarship going to university. I still worked at a gas station a couple of days, a couple of nights a week just to pick up a little extra spending money. So that was learning responsibility. And today we, we, we've forgotten that. People want to have a free handout. They don't want to go through the problems like many of us have gone through, losing a job. Uh, being without a job for maybe a year, two years, being unemployed is very, very difficult. And so we have a situation today where people have been sheltered from this. They have not had a job until they graduate from college, and, oh, I need to go get a job. I have to work. They have no idea what to do, so they're scared to death. They've never learned anything about responsibility. Today, just by divine providence... Victor Davis Hanson wrote an article that came out in the Daily Signal. That's the um, uh, that's that's related to to one of the think tanks in Washington Heritage Foundation, and he writes in there. He talks about a situation that happened a couple of weeks ago, where a TikTok video went viral on social media because a recent Harvard graduate decided to, to have a meltdown and film it and post it on social media, and she threatened to stab anyone who said, all lives matter. And so she was uh, all emotionally out of control, and she got more attention from that on the Internet. But guess what? The company that was going to give her an internship saw that little display of histrionics. And they called her up and they said, we don't think we want an employee who threatens to kill people. So you've just lost your internship. Then, in response, she had a great display of narcissism. This is a Harvard alumnus. And she posted a different video, one that showed her weeping in a near-fetal position. She fought back tears while, listen to this, while complaining how unfair the world was. That's what we're talking about with divine institution number one. The world is unfair. The world is unjust. We are going to face suffering. We're going to face all kinds of unfairness and all kinds of things are going to go wrong and go bad. And so in this second video, she just sobbed and talked about how horrible it was, and she wanted the world to share her pain. So this, this is what happens when you haven't learned uh, how to take personal responsibility for what happens in your life. Victor Davis Hanson goes on to say, when police march against the Antifa crowd and their appendages in order to clear the streets, these 
uh, young people scream like preteens, objecting to mean officers who dare to cross them. When arrested, see, that's, they're, they're just irresponsible to begin with, and then they have to face consequences. And he writes, when arrested, the trash talkers are usually terrified of being jailed or of having an arrest on their records. They don't want to face the consequences. They want to act irresponsibly, but they don't want to face consequences. Hansen goes on to say, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, and their large numbers of imitators and loosely organized wannabes are mostly made up of middle-class youth, often either students or graduates. Most of them are white. They deem, that's my addition. He said, they deem themselves the brains of the rioting, the most woke of the demonstrators, the most sophisticated of the iconoclasts. In truth, they are also the most paranoid about being charged or being hurt. See, they don't want to face the consequences of their action. They don't understand responsibility. He goes on to say, many, many, da- uh, many no doubt, are indebted with large unpaid student loans. Few seem in a hurry to get up at 6 a.m. every day to go to work to service loans that would take years to pay off in full. While some of these, those arrested are professionals, many are not. Few seem to be earning the sort of incomes that would allow them to marry, have children, pay off student loan debt, buy a home, and purchase a new car. That's the American dream, is to be able to live responsibly, to marry, to do well, to work hard, it doesn't come easy, and so many young people have the idea that, that it comes easy. He also comments in here, he says, they think that their parents and grandparents had it so much easier. And I remember, yeah, Betty's shaking her head. I remember when I graduated from college in 1974, and I got out and started working, and all of a sudden I, didn't, I couldn't live off of the affluence and the success of my parents and I wasn't starting where they were and what I, at the level of, of life and, and uh, the level of, of uh, uh, things that I had had and, and were part of my life. I had to start at the bottom. I had to pay for everything. And I was a teacher in Texas. I wasn't making a whole lot of money. That's what that means. I wasn't a teacher in Connecticut where if you're in Connecticut, you make almost twice what you make in Texas as a teacher. And so it was... Um, it was pretty close at the end of every every paycheck. There was more month than there was paycheck, and that was that was difficult. You had to learn how to budget, and you had to learn how to stretch your dollars, and and uh, that was year, years of the uh, gas cr- crisis and the um, you know all of the different things where where gas went, and within a period of a couple of years, went from thirty two cents a gallon to a dollar a gallon. That more it more than tripled. So just just think about that. And so it was it was a challenge, but um that's what you had to do. You had to face it so it was it was hard, but my parents had it hard. they had it very difficult. they went through the great depression, they went through World War two they had to my dad had to work hard, and on top of that, as many of you know, my mother had uh contracted polio uh, when she was pregnant with me, and I never saw my mother walk. And uh, and she was in a wheelchair all through through my life. And she always taught me. She said, no matter what happens, remember God's in charge. You don't whine. You don't complain. You don't uh, try to shirk your responsibility. 
And I know it was very difficult. There were many times when I was growing up, and even as an adult, when, when um, uh, my mother had a series of strokes, uh, 10 years before she died, and she, and she had been paralyzed from the waist down, and she, now she was paralyzed on the left side of her body. And she, I would just catch her when she didn't think anybody was watching, and she'd just be ch- sitting in her chair just weeping because life was miserable for her. It was hard, and she just had all of these things that had happened uh, to her all through the years, but, but she always knew that you had to stick with the Word of God. And so we, but we live in a world today when people uh, don't understand responsibility or, or the consequences. And what's happened in our culture is a failure to teach reality, to help the next generation learn about struggles, to learn about suffering, to learn about hardship in the world. And since the rise of, of uh, psychology on education and especially on parenting, we had a generation of baby boomers. Many of you grew up. Your parents were reading uh, Benjamin Spock, who was the you know, parenting guru back in the 50s, no discipline, uh, all of these different things. So there were a lot of baby boomers that grew up, and their parents did not teach them responsibility. There was no breakdown. And so... That was the beginning of the breakdown of parental discipline. And that gets us, of course, into what will be the third divine institution. In the 1970s, one of the most popular books for young couples was a book by Dr. James Dobson. Now, he was a young guy at that time. You know him as the director of Focus on the Family, but he was just becoming known in the, in the, in the 70s, and his first book was called Dare to Discipline. And it was a bestseller because you had all these new parents who didn't, knew nothing about how to discipline their children. And they, under, they, they were rejecting, especially the Christian ones, were rejecting the ideas of, uh, of Benjamin Spock, and they knew that they needed to discipline their children, and their parents hadn't disciplined them, so they wanted to learn how to do it. Now, 50 years later, we have two ge- more generations that have grown up in a culture that has increasingly protected them from assuming responsibilities in life and from facing the negative and harsh consequences of their bad decisions. Just talk to any teacher in public education, and they'll tell you that many of the youngest kids come to school. They begin in kindergarten and first grade, and they already have a sense of entitlement. They come, and they're arrogant, and they expect to be waited on by the teacher and they have just terrible attitudes. There are exceptions, of course, but many of the kids are that way. And I remember when my teaching experience, I don't know that I've ever talked about that. I graduated at the end of the summer, so most jobs were taken, but there was one job opening in Channel View. For those listening who don't know Channel View, it's sort of the armpit of this part of the world. It's down on the ship channel. And they weren't the brightest and best kids in uh, in the Houston area, and so they just there was a new thing coming on in education that was you know in Texas schools get paid for the for for the attendance. So if you've got 600 kids at school, then you're going to get a certain amount of money. You're going to get paid for each one of those kids. But if you've got, let's say you've had to expel. 20 or 30 of those kids, well, you're losing money. So somebody came up with the bright idea of in-school suspension. Said instead of sending, ex- suspending kids and sending them home, they suspended them and sent them to me. That was just a joy of my life. 
It was a real blessing, though, because most of the time I only had four or five kids, and I had a room almost as big as this, probably about two-thirds the size of this, and I would sit a kid in each corner facing the corner, and I would sit at my desk, and I could watch. If anybody moved, I could catch the movement out of the corner of my eye, and I read Chafer's Systematic Theology from cover to cover. I read every first-year textbook I was going to have to read at, at Dallas Seminary the year before I went to seminary. God blessed me with that job in many ways, but I'm telling you, when that room had 18 troublemakers who should be in jail, and I was the only adult in there, that was a different story. I would go home, and I would just, oh, I can't do this another day. But you had to learn things, and that, that, that's the process. And life is, life is not always easy because we live in a difficult world. And it's hard to understand that when you're young. And I remember hearing a lot of stories like this when I was in seminary. Dr. Hannah would mention them in church history, different people. And we think, oh, isn't this great? God's really blessed me. I'm in seminary. I'm going to get an education. I'm going to go out and get a good church. And these wonderful things are going to happen because God's given me such a great education. And then we would be told about somebody uh, somebody like um, uh, Jim Elliott and his companions who were part of a missionary team to first make contact with the Alca Indias in Ecuador back in the 50s. And when they established their beachhead and the plane flew off and left them there, it was just uh, about a week or two, and then the Indians came and slaughtered all of them. Here, they'd gone through all this training, all this education. They had everything, and people would say, how could God let that happen? I tell you, when you ask that question, you've got a problem. Because God, you will never understand the ways. Those men, five men died, and within two years, most of the tribe became believers. That crime ate away at that culture. And Elizabeth Elliot, his young widow at the time, wrote a book on that called Through Gates of Splendor. And I'd encourage you to read it. It, It's it's eye-opening. We don't have too many genuine martyrs in that sense that we know about coming from the U.S. There are many martyrs today. Just read the reports from Voice of the Martyrs. Christians are being slaughtered today and persecuted today in, in unprecedented numbers around the world, and we need to be aware of that. But God has a plan for suffering. That's what the book of Job is all about. A horrible, horrible event happened to him. He lost all of his children in one day. He lost all of his assets in one day. His 401k went from $5 million to nothing in one day. Not only that, but all his savings accounts were wiped out. Everything everything was gone. He didn't know what was actually happening in the spiritual realm, but that Satan was accusing God of blessing Job just because he, he worshiped God. And so God gave Satan permission to test him. And that's the framework of the whole book of Job. And then uh, Job handles it so well, and he doesn't curse God, that Satan says, let's go to round two and let uh, let me attack his health. And so by the time it's over with, his health's been ruined, he's lost everything. The only thing he's got left is a bitter, angry wife who scolds him and tells him just to curse God and die. And the whole book is to show that we have such limited understanding of what is going on in God's plan and purpose that we need to be like Job and just trust God. As Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And so we have people that we know 
who've gone through suffering, gone through difficulty, faced horrible, horrible things, lots of injustice. They've been abused. Uh, all kinds of things have gone on. But that's what we should expect. That doesn't mean we go along with it. That doesn't mean we just ignore it. But we live in a fallen world, and injustice and suffering is the norm. Undeserved suffering, injustice is the norm. It is not the exception. Life is difficult, and we often wonder, why is it more difficult for some than others? But God is in control, and God has a plan. These are tests, and we're responsible for how we handle those tests. Are we going to yield to our sin nature and give ourselves over to bitterness and anger and resentment and hostility and try to solve our problems with or make them go away through drugs and alcohol and other things like that? Or are we going to learn to uh, do the right thing? Are we going to learn to face the challenge? As many, many have, as most people have in the past, face the challenge and surmount the challenge. But people either yield to their sin nature or they're just passive and I don't know what to do and they just let it happen to them or they give up or they do all of the above. And that's worse than, that's the worst thing they can do. And it makes their life just absolutely miserable. And then they claim to be victims. That's been the big thing for the last 30 years is, oh, I'm a victim. You should have seen what my parents did. And their parents probably did horrible things to them, abused them in many ways that we don't even want to talk about. They grew up maybe with an alcoholic father, alcoholic mother, alcoholic parents. The things that are, go on in this world are, are just scary. They are frightening. But we're all victims. We're victims of Adam's sin. We're victims of having parents who were sinners and fallen and who made a lot of mistakes uh, rearing us. We're victims of the bad decisions of friends, family, teachers, professors, and others in authority. Life is tough to everyone, and we have to learn how to handle that. And we handle that through, through our uh, focus on the Lord and through the Word of God. I'm going to close with one more example here in Genesis 4. We have the situation with Abel and Cain. They bring their offerings to God. Abel brings the firstborn of his flock, and I believe it's both of them know what they're supposed to bring as a sacrifice. I believe Abel is obedient, and God respected Abel and his offering, but Cain brought the best of what he had produced, his works, and God rejected that. And so Cain, look at the response. Cain doesn't own up to it. He's not taking responsibility for being disobedient, and so he reacts in anger, and his countenance fell. He becomes depressed and discouraged, and he enters into mental attitude sins of resentment and hostility and anger, and he's a victim, and he's going to blame Abel for his problem. And the Lord comes to him and says to Cain, Why are you angry? Why are you depressed? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, in other words, if you do the right thing and accept responsibility, then you'll be accepted. But if you don't, sin is lying at the door like a ravenous wolf seeking to rule over you. That's the sense of that passage. Sin lies at the door, and the word there is, a, is the word used for a, a 
predator animal who's crouching to pounce. It's desire. Desire to control is for you, but you should rule over it. See, we must learn to control our sin nature and its lust because, as Peter says, the lust uh, war against our soul. And so we have to to control it, learn self-control and self-discipline and apply the word. And what happens with Cain is he gives in to his sin nature and he murders his brother Abel. And then the Lord comes and says, well, where's Abel? And Cain says, well, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord would say, well, yeah, you're supposed to love your brothers yourself. And God says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And then there's judgment. There's consequences. And all through the Bible, what we see is there's consequences for sin. There's consequences for failure. And that that's part of individual responsibility. And when we have a government that has policies that do not hold people accountable for their bad decisions. I'm not talking about bad decisions that are criminal. I'm talking about irresponsible decisions, people who give up on life, people who won't work, people who are lazy, people who who uh, just uh, let, take, take the easy way out, they think, and they get involved with drugs and alcohol to solve their problems. If the government is going to provide such a huge safety net that these people don't realize the consequences of their failures, then the government is irresponsible. And we dare not have leaders who are going to do it. That was what was really uh, got, um, strengthened, Arn, uh, I'm not Arn Gingrich, uh, uh, Gingrich, Newt Gingrich, back in the, in, in the 92 when they had the contract with America. And they really stripped down a lot of the welfare programs, and they put in there that people had to work. It was a, a, a work relief, and they provided a lot of incentives uh, to get off of, off of welfare. And that was the result of a couple of books that had been written by conservatives that were honestly dealing with the problems of poverty and the solutions that had been offered o- over the years. So we'll come back and talk about that some more. I'm not through with the first divine institution yet, but we'll look at a few more things, wrap it up next time, and then we'll go into probably get started with the second divine institution. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study this evening, to work our way through your word, to understand the importance of accountability and personal responsibility that's built into the very social structure of the human race. And that we have a sin nature, and the sin nature's proclivity is to irresponsibility, to sin, to disobedience, to cover up, and uh, not to take responsibility for our actions. And Father, we pray that you would help us to understand not only how that applies to our own lives and our own personal spiritual growth, but also how that applies to national policies and politics, state politics, local politics, and that we should have policies and laws that encourage people working, encouraging uh, people to go out and provide for themselves, take responsibility for their lives, and pursuing those opportunities so that they can find a a meaningful life uh, as a result of that which they accomplish. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.